You're listening to the Cool Collaborations Podcast, a podcast about success in collaboration, where we hear about collaboration successes from around the world, and we'll look into what made those collaborations work. I'm your host, Scott Miller. Welcome to my conversation with Adam Kahane here on episode number 26 of the Cool Collaborations Podcast. You know, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time because Adam is such an accomplished facilitator with a long history and because he keeps thinking about and evolving the thinking and his theory behind the practice of collaboration. As a director of Rio's Partners, Adam has worked in more than 50 countries all over the world with all manner of high stakes, complex challenges and all manner of high level and diverse participants. Our conversation today centers on Adam's fifth and most recent book called Facilitating Breakthrough, How to Remove Obstacles, Bridge Differences, and Move Forward Together. This is a great book that everybody who facilitates or works with groups of people on complex problems should have in their library because I suspect you'll be referring back to it often to glean insights and direct your own practice. Please enjoy my conversation with Adam Kahane. Good morning, Adam. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Scott. Where uh, where are you joining from today? I'm in the Laurentian Mountains, north of Montreal. So we're getting together today to talk about your new book called Facilitating Breakthrough, How to Remove Obstacles, Bridge Differences, and Move Forward Together. Now it came out, what, I think three weeks ago today. Yep. And your challenge to me was to read the book and ask some questions around anything that I had that came up that was unclear or just my thinking in general about the book. And where I wanted to start off from was this idea of, it seems like your books in general are each one is sort of a step in an evolution of your thinking. Is that a fair a fair assessment? Yeah, well, an evolution of my thinking based on evolution of my practice. I've been doing, I've been working on helping people make progress on difficult challenges for 30 years. So helping people work together or collaborate. And I've been facilitating that. So that's my day job. And I do what I think works. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, when things don't go as I expected, I'm pretty disciplined in and ask myself, well, what what happened here? And what about my thinking or my approach or my model or my framework was, was inadequate? So yeah, I've been doing this work for 30 years and every few years I pause and say, how do I understand this now? And so yes, there's in my mind a very clear progression in how I understand what this work's really all about uh, over the course of these five books. What was the impetus for this particular book, this latest book? Was there a, a change in your thinking or I think you said, you know, is it just a pause and reflect or was there more to it than that? For this book, there were a few things. Firstly, the I mean, my theme for a long time has been that the world needs more and better collaboration. That more and more often we're dealing with challenges within organizations, in communities, uh, in countries, where we can't make progress acting unilaterally or by force. So for a long time, I've had this idea: the world needs more and better collaboration. But I realized that in that in doing that work, there's a specific role that I'd not that I knew a lot about, but I'd never written about, which is the role of the facilitator. 
And if we're going to have more and better collaboration, we need more and better facilitation. So the the impetus for writing the book is to try to articulate what is facilitation, who can facilitate, and what in essence does that involve. And so that's why the book's called Facilitating Breakthrough. Right. If I understand correctly, this book was not sort of the, you sat down and wrote it and then published it. You took a different route in putting this book together. Can you explain a little bit of the the process you followed in putting the book together? Well, I mean, I did know that I wanted to write a book about facilitation. That was clear from the beginning. So what I did, there are two things I did that I think are relevant. The first is I, I had an idea about what I wanted to write about, and I started to write. And in the process of writing, I would literally write something, print it out, look at it, and see how it needed to be changed. And I did that, I don't know, several hundred times. So for me, that's uh, this is my main creative endeavor. And my experience in writing is central to one of the themes of facilitation is that you can't know before you start what's going to work and not work. You, you can only try and look at it and adjust. So that for me is a big deal. And in fact, pretty well everything about the what I ended up saying about facilitation, I figured out in the process of writing. Almost none of it was was clear to me before I started. Relatedly, and I think this might be what you're alluding to, I also decided to ask a lot of people if they'd be willing to read drafts and give me comments. And in the end, 207 people signed up and I sent them the draft four or five times and got their comments on it. And those comments were very useful uh, because other people could see things that I couldn't, that something was unclear or confusing or just didn't make sense or was repetitive or needed more explanation. Now that's, people find that unusual, or I'm surprised I, I'm willing to do that. And it is a little difficult in the sense that when I look back at the early drafts, I can't believe how bad they were. So it's a, it's a little embarrassing that I sent out such shitty drafts to so many people. <laughs> On the other hand, I know that there's no way I could have gotten a better draft except by being willing to print out for, for other people and for myself um, a not good draft. So the reason this is so important is because I think in all of this kind of collaboration work or facilitation work, the only way to make progress is to, to act and then adjust as you go along. Right. Now, there's one final thing about this. I don't want to exaggerate how collaborative the book writing was. It was more consultative than collaborative. I asked people for their feedback and, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of useful comments, but I decided all by myself what I was going to take and not take. So it wasn't that it was really a co-created book. That would be an exaggeration. But there is something about that process that's very related to one of the central principles of the book. The central principle of the book is that people want to contribute, they want to connect, and they want to do that equitably. And I realized that's what was so remarkable about the role of these 207 people, who's, many of whom made tens of comments on every draft, really very generous contribution to my work. And I think it's because those people really wanted to contribute to what they saw as a useful undertaking. They wanted to connect to one another, uh, in, in this sense, through the Google Doc, where people were talking to each other about 
what they thought about this or that. And they wanted it to be done equitably. So I was very transparent in what comments I took on board and that anybody could comment on anything and I wasn't restricting it in any way. So that's in a way the the clearest link between how I wrote the book and the content of the book. Did the content of your book, and I'm thinking of the sort of the big ideas that you were putting forward, did they change at all because of the feedback you received? Well, yes, for sure. I'll just give you one example. When you're writing a book about a methodology, one of the things you have to do is you have to be clear about what is this different from. So my, I have a very outstanding uh, editor, been my editor for all of my books, a man named Steve Piersante, who was the founder and president of Barrett Kohler, who's my publisher, and he's no longer the president, but he, he still acted as my editor. So he says, a book needs a bad guy. Like, what's, what is this different from? And so at first, I thought that the bad guy, the kind of facilitation that I was talking about moving away from, was what I later came to call vertical facilitation. This idea that facilitation is about getting people to act as one. And I thought that the the shift was from vertical facilitation to horizontal facilitation, where the principle is is that you have to focus above all on the on the ideas and needs and interests of the individual participants. So early on, one of my commenters, a man named Marco Vicente made the comment, the very profound comment, that he thought this was incorrect. So that was a huge change in the thinking of the book. And the the thinking of the book now is that the bad guy is not vertical facilitation. The bad guy is choosing either vertical or horizontal facilitation. And so what I call transformative facilitation chooses both. Right. And that's the, that is the organizing principle in the book. And that came in a comment from this person who, you know, I now know a little bit, but who I'd never met before, but who generously made this, this comment on my book. Well, that's a, that's a pretty f- profound step change in the whole concept. But it does flow very nicely. At least when I read the book, it seemed to flow and connect very well to sort of across the levels, if you know what I mean, from sort of the higher level, higher level thinking. You talked about contributing, connecting, and being equitable. Mm-hmm. And above that, the love, power, and justice pieces. And I want to touch on those in a second. But it seems like it flows very well from the top to the bottom, I think. Like for me, it it made intuitive sense to connect those pieces and then you'll see from somewhere where I want to kind of explore a little bit that I want to get into some of the the justice angles of this whole thing. So let's let's maybe start off and back up a bit for people who maybe are not that familiar. At the sort of the top of the the hierarchy, it's not even a hierarchy, but at the top of the the highest level thinking, you use terms of love, power and justice and then how they show up as connection, contribution and equity and the facilitator's job. But I wanted to start with, can you just describe quickly those words in the context of collaboration to sort of ground people in, in that basic understanding? So in this book and in all of my writing, I'm with, uh, in general, I'm not saying something that nobody's ever said before. I haven't invented this kind of facilitation, but I am, I do try very hard to say things clearly and to 
use words that help people understand better what it's all about. Right. So I'm glad that you thought it made sense. That's what happens if you rewrite a book 200 times, you know, you <laughs> with lots of feedback, Ben. Hopefully it, it seems obvious to the reader, even though it took me a long time to get there. Right. So you're correct that, I don't know what's at the top of the hierarchy or at the bottom, but the most, the two deepest things I'm saying in the book are the following. The first is that facilitation is not about getting people to do things. It's about enabling them to do what they are driven to do. And this is quite a big deal for me because I think that most leaders and managers and facilitators default to trying to get people to do things. Yeah, <laughs> Facilitators wouldn't necessarily admit it, but if you're with them in the bar at the end of the workshop, a lot of the conversation is about, you know, how do you get people to do things? And when I give speeches on this work, 100% of the time, somebody will ask me, well, how do you get people to do ABC? So my experience is I can't really get people to do anything or almost anything and not people in my organization, not people in my family, not people I facilitate. And so an important idea in, in this book is that facilitation is not about getting people to do things, but about removing the obstacles to them doing so, or working with them to remove the obstacles to them doing so. And so then the second, the second part of this, which is what you referred to, is, well, what, is, what are the drives that you're enabling? If this is about removing obstacles, removing obstacles to what? And I answer that question eventually by, by saying removing obstacles to the expressions of love, power, and justice. And I'm using these words because they're powerful words that have deep roots, but I'm using them in a very particular way with very precise definitions, which happen to all come from German-American Protestant existential theologian named Paul Tillich, uh, not because I'm really into German-American Protestant existential <laughs> theology. I'd have to say it's not really my thing, but because I find his definitions have enormous explanatory value. I can understand what's going on in my work when I use his definitions. So he defines love as the drive to unite the separated. In a way, that's the first thing you're doing when you're bringing people together to collaborate, whether it's people from across a company or from across a community, people who were not previously working together or weren't working together well, and you're saying, okay, let's work on this together. And that is above all, or in, sorry, in essence, about unifying the separated. Right. Which implies, that definition implies, by the way, that there is a wholeness, which it does not be created, but which has become fractured. And all of my early experiences with facilitation, right back to facilitating in South Africa in the last years of apartheid, apartheid, the word apartheid just means apartness, separation. So these were people who had been separated, in that case by, by government policy, and came together to work on this project about the transition to democracy. So this, for me, is the, the basic thing about if the job of a facilitator is to help people collaborate to affect change, then the first move is love in this sense of the word, not the romantic sense of the word. Yeah. And if you want a more ordinary word, you would say connection. And my experience is when people who have been separated, who haven't worked together or who think they can't, or who, yeah, who are really 
hesitant to work together. When they find they can, they are thrilled. You don't have to get them to work together. They're thrilled to work together if you can enable that to happen. The second drive is what Tillich calls power, the drive everything living to realize itself. And this for me is crucial and it's what can be called contribution. The, the fact that everybody wants to contribute, wants to realize themselves, wants to grow, has ambitions, has interests, has things they're trying to do, has a job they're trying to get done. This isn't a problem to collaboration. It's required for collaboration. You're literally going to accomplish nothing without power. Not power over, uh, but power with. So that's where power comes into this. And I have previously written a book called Power and Love about the need to not choose either power or love, either connection or contribution, but the need to, to involve them both. The new element, as you referred to, is justice, or to use a more ordinary word, equity. People want to contribute and connect, but they want it to be equitable. They want to be treated fairly. Things really don't work if people think that they're being treated inequitably. And Tillich defines justice as the form or the structure or the direction that enables power and love. So the easiest way to understand that is what is injustice or inequity. It's where some people are allowed to use their power and other people aren't. Some people are allowed to connect and, and others aren't. And so the most profound statement in the book, which is in the conclusion, is that if you want, if facilitating is helping people collaborate to affect change, you need to employ love and power and justice. You can't choose only one or two of these. You need all three. That trinity translates through the entire structure of transformative facilitation. It's how I saw it. So the mm -hmm. the love and power, and I, I have to laugh at a little bit myself because yesterday I was in the car on my way to something and was contemplating some of these things, listening, I was listening to some other um, discussions that you'd had. And in my head, I'm thinking, well, the love and power polarities are, I, I, in my head, I was like, well, they're kind of like lumpers and splitters. Maybe that's a little too simple, but I got to chuckle about it anyway. Uh, sorry, I don't know what you mean by lumpers and splitters. Well, these the people who, uh, in, in workshops, there's always the people who like to take the sticky notes and, oh, and group oh, them see. together, right? right. <laughs> group them together and create bigger and bigger yeah, yeah, yeah. categories. Right. Yeah, yes, it is. Um, and so the way I'm using the words, which is not the way most people use them, but you know, the word in English, the word group is both a singular noun and a plural noun. So love is about the fact that there's one whole; it's the unity, the the lumper, if you will, the people. And power is the focus on on the, the multiplicity. And Barry Oshry, who's written brilliant uh, books on, uh, on systems work in organizations, says that love is about integration and homogenization, the fact that we're going to do things together in the same way, and power is about differentiation and individuation, that we're each going to, we're going to do things separately and each in our own way. So it's a classic polarity. You can't do only one or only the other. You've got to do both. And this idea that, yeah, you need a form, justice, which enables both power and love is the core of this argument. Right. If we dive down now, sort of 
to the next, the more tactical, where you're talking about the role of the facilitator and a facilitator. I, you know, I have to ask, even though you've touched on some of your thoughts on what transformative facilitation is, that the question I really want to ask is, can you explain transformative facilitation while standing on one foot? <laughs> so, uh, yes, uh, that it doesn't work to focus only on the group as a whole or only on the plural group of individuals. You've got to do both, not at the same time, but alternately. Right. You know, I asked that question because that was actually one of the statements out of the book that I, I kind of chuckled at and I thought, ah, I know, I know how to ask a question that yeah. you might not expect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're alluding to this famous story of uh, Hillel, who was a Jewish sage a few thousand years ago, and he's famous for, for having been asked, could he explain uh, Jewish law while standing on one foot? And his famous answer was, love thy neighbor as thyself, the rest is commentary, now go study. And if somebody asked me to explain facilitation while standing on wood one foot, I would say, it's different from the answer I gave you a minute ago, I would say it's about paying attention, the rest, the rest is practice. So yeah. it's about practicing how to pay attention in order to do to make the move that's required of you at that moment. Because there's no way to know in advance which move is required. So it's all about being able to pay attention to what's going on in the system, in the group, in yourself, in order to know what move to make next. You know, I want to dig into the moves and talk about them a little bit. But before we do that, when you're speaking about the role of a facilitator, you're not necessarily describing the person with the flip chart or the person at the front of the room. It, it sounds to me, and it seems to me from your descriptions, that that's a role that could fall to any or potentially all of the people who are working together. Is that a fair understanding? Yes, that's correct. I'm trying to do a, a few things in this book about, about how people think about facilitation. The first is, yes, I don't think facilitation is just the person standing at the front of the room with a flip chart or the middle of a Zoom window in the middle of a Zoom screen. I'm saying facilitation or a facilitator can be anybody or any group of people that are trying to help people collaborate to affect change. So that can be the role of a leader, a manager, a coach, a consultant, a member of the team, that it's a role, not a job, if I could put it that way. It's also not something that just happens in meetings. I mean, I work as a professional facilitator and 80% of my time is before and after meetings, not in meetings. So in that sense, I'm trying to broaden the understanding of facilitation, but I'm also trying to make it bigger because if it's true that the world needs more and better collaboration and more, and therefore more and better facilitation, I, I think that facilitation is a rather more important role than it's commonly understood. Uh, it's not just the timekeeper or the referee. You know, in French, the word for facilitator is animateur, which is a bit of a funny word because it's the same word used to describe people leading activities in club med. So it has this, this <laughs> connotation of, you know, the clown at the front of the room making everybody, whatever, jump around on the beach. So I think it's rather more important than that because we're living in a period where there's just not that much we can get done anymore with people just telling other people what to do or people just doing what they want. We need 
this role of facilitator. And so I'm trying to make facilitation a bigger and bolder thing than it's commonly understood. Like I say, we're going to touch on these, the different dimensions of what kind of the context that facilitators will work within between the two polarities we talked about. But one of the things that struck me was that a lot of the characteristics that you are describing for this role as a facilitator, this ability to move inside a situation in response to what's happening on sort of certain dimensions, that that's very akin to what you would hear in leadership circles or in the description of, of good leaders. And so is there a distinction in your mind between the role of a facilitator and the role of a leader? Because there, there seems to be a, quite a bit of overlap, at least as I was reading it. No, I think there is a lot of overlap. You could say facilitating is a way of leading. Facilitating is a way of leading when you can't or don't want to get people to do things. Where you don't have or you don't want to use authority to get things done and therefore the job is enabling people to get stuff done rather than getting them to get things done <laughs> right so yes i i suppose it's a kind of a flavor of leadership i like that a particular flavor which i think is more important because as i've said several times i think the the number of times when telling people what to do will work is shrinking. It's not zero, but it's not what it used to be. So if we were to dig into the five dimensions, I think you call them dimensions in the book. So when I read this, I what struck me was that this is this is about how the two, and when I think of the two polarities, I'm thinking of the love and power polarities, the connection and contribution, the one and the whole, and they manifest in different circumstances or contexts. And you've laid them out as five contexts, and I'll and I'll just touch on them, read them out here, so that people understand what we're talking about. So bas- basically, the dimensions that people are working on are, you know, how they see the situation, and they're they're moving between an inquiring and an advocating role, or they're defining success as another context, and they're either advancing or concluding. And again, each of these is a reflection of that higher power love polarity. They're either they're describing the path that they're going to take and they're either discovering it or mapping. At some point, they're into a decision-making dimension and the group is moving or the facilitator is helping move between accompanying or directing. And then the last dimension is just about understanding our role. And that's uh, either a standing inside or standing outside. So yes, uh, what I've tried to do in this book is to give what I think is a pretty complete map of facilitation. So what you say sounds complicated. So it's a little complicated. It's not exactly the same as moving to power and love, but it's closely related. It's moving between what I call the vertical pole and the horizontal pole. And we can't choose either the vertical or the horizontal. We've got to do them both, but not at the same time. Just like you got to breathe in, you got to inhale and exhale, but you don't do them both at the same time. So The basic idea is there are these five questions that groups have to wrestle with over and over, which are the ones you've said. And for each of those questions, there's two, there's a vertical move and a horizontal move. So yeah, I mean, I've made a map of pretty well everything important facilitation, and it's only 10 moves. So the good news is it's only 10 moves. It's like a vocabulary that had only 10 words in it. 
or a recipe that had only 10 ingredients. So that's, you know, I mean, it sounds complicated, uh, maybe to the listener, but it's, it's only 10 words, 10 things you have to do, 10 moves. So that's the simple part. The thing that's not easy about it is you can't know in advance which move you have to make when. It would be like if I gave you a recipe that had 10 ingredients, but I didn't tell you how much of each or in what order or when. I just said, use these 10 ingredients <laughs> as needed. So the part that's, that's not easy is to know which move to make requires paying attention. Uh, in other words, to know which outer move to make requires this inner shift towards paying attention, also in five dimensions. Yeah. And that's the essence. To pay attention well enough to what's going on in the situation, in the group, and in yourself, to know, okay, which of these 10 moves do I need to make next? Do I need to inquire or advocate? Do I need to advance or conclude? Do I need to discover or map? Do I need to accompany or direct? Do I need to stand inside or stand outside? And if you can do that, you're home free. Are there any of those dimensions that are more, I don't want to say more necessarily more important, but perhaps more influential than others? Or is it all context-specific? No, I think they're, they're, it's five, five versions of the same polarity, the vertical horizontal polarity. Some organizations or people find one or another more challenging than others. For example, many organizations find this polarity between discovering and mapping to be very difficult because the habit is, or the assumption is, I've got to know before I start where I'm going to go. That's the mapping part of it. I've got to make a plan. I've got to say before I start out where I'm going to end up. And that's that's useful, but very limited because most of the time you're only going to know what works as you try it. It's exactly what I emphasized at the beginning of this conversation in my process of writing a book. I knew where I wanted to end up, which was a, a book about facilitation. And I had some ideas, but it was really only through writing them down, trying them out, getting feedback that I could figure out what would work and what wouldn't work. So I think many organizations have this vertical tendency towards mapping and find the discovering and the error, the making mistakes along the way that this implies to be difficult. Similarly, some organizations or many organizations or many facilitators tend towards directing versus accompanying but it's five dimensions of the same thing. And you've got some organizations or some leaders who tend to the vertical and others who tend to the horizontal. And so the big idea in this book is don't, you can't choose one or the other. It's a really bad idea. Just like choosing between inhaling and exhaling, really bad idea. <laughs> you've got to do both. So practice doing both. Of course, you know, the other piece of this that we're, we haven't talked about is this, the internal the shifts, the things that a facilitator has to do in order to be able to pay attention, basically. And you've, you've listed those for each of these dimensions as well. And what kind of struck me, and it's come up in my own thinking around collaboration as well, is that there is a journey that a, that a facilitator that takes to do their job. So some self-awareness, being able to understand where they are in the, in the situation. But then there's also that same path is being followed by the group that you're working with. Maybe not to the same degree, but you're kind of, 
there's an internal journey and then there's a group journey. Yeah. So the five inner shifts are again five you know, subtly different facets of this same thing, which is paying attention. And so the five are opening, discerning, adapting, serving, and partnering, but they're all just five ways to pay attention, which is the standing on one leg uh, explanation of facilitation, pay attention. Yeah. But yes, everything I've said about these five pairs of moves and these five, these five pairs of outer moves and these five inner shifts are required both of the facilitator or facilitators and also the participants in the collaboration. So in a way, the facilitator's job is to guide and teach and model these five pairs of moves, of five pairs of other moves and these five inner shifts. But collaboration really works if, if multiple people in the collaboration are, are developing this sensitivity. So one of the things that you've talked about is, is sort of a proclivity for facilitators or others, groups, organizations to get stuck in one approach, a vertical approach or a horizontal approach. And of course, you're advocating to build the skill set and the awareness to be able to, to shift between them as needed. Exactly. So my question is, what should we be doing differently to teach facilitators? How do we embed this kind of skill set in the minds of new facilitators? Because it has to be, it seems like it has to take a bit more than sort of academic style learning. Yeah. Well, what I'm doing in this book is I'm trying to give a language to this, to the different aspects of this work. I haven't invented something new, but I have invented a new language for talking about something that most good facilitators are doing intuitively. So part of it is just naming these moves and these poles and these shifts so that people have a way to talk about it. I got an email a few weeks ago from a guy I don't know. I think he said he was 85 years old and has been teaching leadership facilitation for a very long time. And he said, I read your book and a lot of the stuff in it was stuff I'd done a lot, but you provided a, a framework that pulled it all together. So, so that's the first thing I'm trying to do is just provide a way of thinking about this. And in particular, I think that most facilitation training emphasizes the vertical, which is how to get people to act as one. So I think that's the most common kind of facilitation. And then the opposite, which is, no, 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 we can't have anybody bossing anybody else around. We, uh, the key thing is equality and for everybody's perspective and needs and interests to be realized. That's the horizontal, which has also become very popular. So the first thing I'm saying to facilitators is that's really a lousy choice. Don't do it. And I think that's not very complicated. Most people say, oh, yeah, oh, okay. Thanks for pointing that out. That makes sense. The other thing I'm trying to do in the book, though, is to show that this is possible, that this book, like all of my books, is based 100% on my own experience. I've been doing this for 30 years in some pretty difficult contexts. Civil war, uh, climate change, indigenous health in Canada, lots and lots of different issues um, all over the world that, that my colleagues and I work on. So the other part of this is just saying, you may think that this couldn't work, but 
It does work. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so the second thing about the book is just to say it is possible. Doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's straightforward. Doesn't mean it's foolproof, but it is possible. And if you do these things, you can up your probability of being successful. So those are the two things that I think this can offer to to new or experienced facilitators, which is one, a new, simple, but I think fundamental framework. And second, stories that show this is possible, inspiring stories that show this is possible. Before I, I sort of start to wrap up with a couple of sort of short answer type questions, I'm curious if there was anything else that you wanted wanted to add that I had missed or hadn't asked. No, you've uh, you've covered everything, Scott. I think people no need to spend the nineteen dollars and ninety five cents. We've pretty well covered it all. <laughs> uh, I disagree. I think one thing we didn't touch on was the stories uh, and the examples that you draw on, which are we probably could have had an entire discussion just around those uncovering some of the nuances and little pieces in each example. So absolutely, uh, people have to go and buy the book, if not for the lessons, at least for the examples. How do you prepare for being in a room? Are you, are you the type of person that sort of draws energy from those types of discussions or those types of, of in, um, engagements? Or are you one that kind of has to invest a bunch of energy and then take some time to recover? Well, I think uh, I think it was Jung who defined introverts and extrovert. They can both be with groups, but one gets energy. One one needs to give energy, and one gets energy from the group. So I'm an introvert in that sense that I find it physically exhausting. But I love working with groups, and uh, it's my life work, my vocation. So I don't want to be doing anything else. But it does take energy. Is there a routine you use for yourself personally to prepare to be in the room and also to? sort of decompress afterwards? Uh, well, the decompression is just to uh, have a nap because I find it physic- physically tiring. Yep. Uh, but the preparation, I think, is more important and more universal. Because paying attention is the crucial capacity, what I think is most important is to just not be distracted. So for me, making sure that other things are not bothering me, that I'm dealt with other things I need to deal with, whether it's other projects or things at home, that I've gotten a good night's sleep, that I've done all my preparation, that I've done all my rehearsal with the team so that we can, we're ready and we can put that all aside and pay attention to what's going on and what we need to do next. And rather than be so distracted or stressed or frightened that we, you know, latch on and hold tight to something that isn't really working. Right. That makes makes a lot of sense. So my last my last question for you is one I ask everybody and I'm aside from your suite of books, I'm curious if you have a book that you either give as a gift or that has been very influential in your thinking and that you might recommend. Well, I will recommend a book, but some people learn from books and some people learn from hitting their head <laughs> against the wall. And I'm a hitting my head against the wall person. I learn mostly from my own experience, but there are some books that have had a big impact on my thinking. And probably one I would recommend is the book Polarity Management by Barry Johnson, who he's written several books on the same subject, including a new book called And, A-N-D. But he lays out very beautifully this idea that 
oftentimes the things we find difficult are not a choice between two things, but the need to, to do both of them. The central idea of, of working between two poles, not choosing one. Right. So I think it's a profound idea that that is important in many, many dimensions of, of living and working. Right. And it's clear, clearly evident in, in your thinking around collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to say very much thank you for taking the time uh, for the discussion today. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and I hope you did as well. Thank you very much. I did. I'm incredibly grateful for this conversation with Adam Kahane today and his willingness to share his thinking and his experiences in collaboration. Now, there are many lessons to be learned from Adam and his latest book, Facilitating Breakthrough. But what I found most satisfying, if that's the right word, that idea that resonated in my mind, is this trinity of love, power, and justice as the drivers behind how people and groups work. On one hand, we have a drive to unite and create one solution or one path or one decision. And at the same time, recognize the needs and the ambitions and the requirements of all the different parts that go into making up that whole. And standing with these two polarities is justice or that structure or the form that makes achieving unity and recognizing the needs of the parts possible. Adam's point about focusing on what to do next has also stuck in my mind that we can only take the very next step and from there we need to decide what to do next. That notion is a very apt way to describe the collaborative process. And it's also what makes it so difficult to convey the value of collaboration to those people who need to know the whole process in advance. Thank you, Adam, for a great conversation. My goal with this podcast is to enable more people to know about the kinds of success that can come from collaboration. Successes like Adam Grahane describes in his book, Facilitating Breakthrough. If you feel this is important too, please take a moment to share this episode and the show with two friends who you think would enjoy it. Until the next time, happy collaborating. You've been listening to Cool Collaborations. Please make sure you visit collaboration-dynamics.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, in Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to sign up for our mailing list so interesting things like blog posts, upcoming training, or collaboration tips and tricks can come to your inbox. If you like what you heard, I'd be grateful for a rating in Apple Podcasts. Of course, if you'd like to just tell a friend about the show, that would be great too. Check out the show notes for links and contact information. Until the next episode, thanks and happy collaborating. Collaborating.